This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharma Dean Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm David Marsland, and this is The Leader. More than 100,000 people in the UK have died from COVID-19. How did that happen? In this edition of The Leader, we've adapted an article from the Evening Standard's Jonathan Prynne that tries to answer that and explain how we got to where we are today. You can read the full thing in the newspaper or online at standard.co.uk. For London, it began on March 6th. The first confirmed death in the capital from coronavirus was an elderly man, admitted to the Royal London in Whitechapel with breathing difficulties. Our city has been on the front line in the struggle against the pandemic ever since. The time has now come for us all to do more. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Both the first and second wave ripped through homes, hospitals and the care sector earlier and faster than the rest of the country. The Evening Standard's Jonathan Prynne says the toll has been horrific. We reached this horrendous landmark yesterday nationally, 100,000 deaths now recorded. In London, we're on about uh, 12,700. Death rates in London have been higher, particularly in the first wave. London appears to get hit earlier and harder than other parts of the country. So why has the UK, and London in particular, been so badly hit by a disease that has death tolls in the dozens or low hundreds in many other countries? Very simply, London was always a vulnerable target. The capital is the greatest global crossroads, its biggest aviation hub, home to more international students than virtually any other metropolis. And the virus took hold after the February half-term, when thousands of Londoners packed into bars and restaurants in the Alps, in one of the worst super-spreader events of the whole pandemic. At the time, French Health Minister Agnes Bazaine said it appeared to have started with a British national who returned from Singapore, where the virus had already been found. 
He arrived on January 24th in France, and he stayed for four days in the town of contamine Montjoie. All positive cases and the close contacts were of British nationality. In total, 11 people who resided in the same chalet were hospitalized that night in university hospital centers of Lyon, Saint-Étienne and Grenoble. Knowing what happened then, perhaps it was even more important that borders were shut early and hard to limit the volume of carriers coming into the country as many medical experts demanded, but they were not. The travel quarantine measures did not come until June. It was only on January 15th this year that Boris Johnson shut the last of the travel corridors. And it's precisely because we have the hope of that vaccine and the risk of new strains coming from overseas that we must take additional steps now to stop those strains from entering the country. So yesterday we announced that we're banning flights from South America and Portugal and to protect us against the risk of as yet unidentified new strains, we will also temporarily close all travel corridors from 0400 hours on Monday. It is now also apparent that much of the preparation and early response was misguided. Britain's planning assumed that the next pandemic would be a flu rather than coronavirus-based illness. Without the direct experience of SARS and other deadly viral diseases such as Ebola, advanced test and trace infrastructure on a scale that did such a remarkable job at containing the spread in Southeast Asian countries like South Korea was not in place. It did eventually arrive at a cost of £12 billion. Here's how it works. If you have COVID-19 symptoms, you must self-isolate immediately and get a test. But responsibility was farmed out to private companies with limited experience in controlling a highly infectious disease, leading to protests outside the Department of Health. The expertise of local health authorities with on-the-ground knowledge was largely ignored. There was a shortage of ventilators in the early stages of the pandemic, and the chaos over PPE also highlighted the inadequate preparation. Some of the early public messages were confused. The evidence on face masks has always been quite variable, quite weak, quite difficult to know exactly, and there's no real trials on it. And uh, we will, uh, we've undertaken a review, we'll give our advice to ministers and they'll make decisions about what to do around that. Some Londoners began routinely wearing face masks on the streets in March, but early official advice was that there was no scientific evidence that face coverings made any difference. That's something the Evening Standard's political editor Joe Murphy challenged Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty about during a coronavirus briefing in April last year. If you could illuminate how you reached the government's line that masks are no help outside a care setting, because it's being challenged by experts like Jeremy Howard and Jeremy Hunt, who says they may reduce the spread on London Underground when people get back to work. I think my summary to date would be the evidence is weak, but the evidence of a small effect is there under certain circumstances. And what we're really trying to do is work out under what circumstances, if any, should we extend the advice and under what circumstances should we not change that advice. But the point about scientific advice is it evolves. 
Another major factor that will have to be examined in detail in any future inquiry into Britain's death toll will be the state of the nation's health. Britain has one of the world's highest obesity rates. In London, there's also poor housing and overcrowding. Our hospitals, albeit world-class ones, were straining at the limit of their capacity, and all of that is likely to have contributed to the capital's high death rates. London's large black and Asian population is also likely to have played a role as statistics point to higher than average death rates among ethnic groups. And there's more. As the disease filled London's hospitals with increasingly sick patients, many elderly victims were sent back to recover in their care homes. Jonathan Prince says that may have been one of the worst mistakes of the pandemic. At the time, the focus was all on the hospitals, freeing up space in the hospitals. So uh, you can sort of see the motivation, but also with hindsight, it was a, it was a catastrophic uh, bad decision. I mean, it's been estimated that 20,000 deaths can be attributed to that decision. You know, with hindsight, it looks incredible that you would send highly infectious people into the midst of, of communities that include the most vulnerable groups of all, as we now know, the elderly. When the lockdown finally came on March 23rd, it was arguably a fortnight too late. When the shackles were lifted in the summer, nobody dreamed of a second wave that would be even more deadly than the first. Through the autumn, London's blighted hospitality and retail sectors were subjected to a barrage of often conflicting messages as businesses were told to shut, open and shut again. For London, the November lockdown came just as numbers were starting to fall. But when the Kent variant exploded, it once again revealed the lack of planning as Downing Street boosterism was fatally exposed by failings such as a lack of laptops for schools when lockdown returned after Christmas. And perhaps London also got unlucky. The Kent variant that's proved so difficult to control began doing its deadly work last September, although it was not until December that it was identified and policy shifted. But it was all too late again, and the death toll continued its rise towards that grim landmark. I, of course, deeply, uh, personally regret the loss of life, uh, the suffering of their families, uh, Mr Speaker, but I think the best thing that we can do uh, to honour the memory of those who have died and uh, to honour those who are currently grieving is to work together uh, to bring this virus down, to keep it under control in the way that we are. But Jonathan Prynne thinks maybe... As we pass that 100,000 figure and mourn all of those lost, there could be the beginnings of hope. Yeah, I mean, there's two two main reasons for hope. One is that infection rates are falling very rapidly, particularly in London. And of course, we've now got what nearly 10% or around 10% of the population vaccinated. That rollout seems to be going remarkably well, actually. So hopefully by around Easter, maybe slightly before, the restrictions can, can start coming off and some semblance of what we remember as normal life can uh, can begin again. This podcast was adapted and abridged from an Evening Standard article by Jonathan Print. The leader is back tomorrow at 4pm. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. 
QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.